Father God, thank you for this opportunity to gather and to worship, to gather and to sing, to gather and declare what we believe. Help us to truly believe it, Father. Would you speak to us this morning from your word and challenge us as only your spirit can, each personally, individually, and then collectively as a church, Lord, make us who you want us to be. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are studying this amazing little book written by Jesus' brother, whose name is James. And James is inviting us to live our lives based on the wisdom that he has both seen and heard taught by Jesus. And this wisdom challenges the thinking of cultures everywhere and of every time. And we're going to see that today. We're going to feel that today. Today, we're looking at what Dallas Willard, who happens to be one of my favorite authors over the years, he passed away just a little over a year ago. Uh, Dallas Willard would call this the great inversion. Uh, This is where the wisdom of God, Jesus' wisdom, challenges or turns the wisdom of cultures upside down and inside out. Uh, We live in a world that believes that human means, things like money and power, having assets, these are the keys to a good life. Uh, Some of you may have seen the musical uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Remember where Tevia, kind of one of the main characters in that musical, sings that song, If I Were a Rich Man, remember that? He goes on to say in that song, the most important men in town would come to fawn on me. They would ask me to advise them like Solomon the wise, posing problems that would cross a rabbi's eyes. And and it won't make one bit of difference if I answer right or wrong, because when you're rich, they think you really know. And Tevye is right. We do think that. We think that if you're rich, you must know. Uh, You must have the secret. You must be especially smart. After all, you are successful. And we think likewise that if you're poor, you can't know much. Uh, You certainly don't know the secret to the good life. You can't be that smart because you aren't successful. So all things considered, if you're poor, you don't matter that much. And that kind of thinking has been layered into pretty much every human culture since sin entered into the world. And that kind of thinking even colors our faith and our life with God. And James, because of his brother Jesus, is going to challenge us to the core on this. But before we get into James' little letter, I want to set some cultural context if I can. There's a guy by the name of Joseph Hellerman who writes about the culture of the Roman Empire. He's a scholar and a researcher, a historian, and he points out that there was a huge divide in Roman society. In the Roman Empire, about 2% of the population was in this category of the elite. These people had the wealth, they had the power, They had the privilege, the prestige, the honor. And Rome, as a culture, as a society, was very much about the pursuit of honor, status, rank. Uh, Cicero, a Roman philosopher and author, said this. He said, rank must be preserved. 
Point being, preserved at any cost. Social rank or status was the glue that held everything together in Roman society. Made everything work. And everybody knew this. Everybody recognized this. So there would be a few different levels or layers, if you will, of status or honor or rank in the Roman society, in the Roman Empire. Kind of like rungs on a ladder, right? Um, At the very, very top of that ladder were senators. When Rome was uh, in its imperial days, there were 600, only 600 senators. They had wealth. They were the A-list. They were top of the heap. Underneath them were people called the equestrians. Remember some of this from high school days studying this? Uh, The equestrians, they were called that because in the early days of Rome, these were people that were wealthy enough to bring horses to the fight. And so they were called equestrians. There were several thousand, only several thousand equestrians. Underneath them were the decurions. These were low-level officials, bureaucrats, really. They had some power, but not a lot. And these three groups combined, senators, equestrians, decurions, made up 2% of the total population. Everybody else, 98%, were not in the elite. They were called the vulgus. They were the vulgar, the sweaty, the hardworking, unwashed masses. And some of them had their freedom. They were free people. They were laborers. They were merchants. They were soldiers. But many of the vulgus were also, in fact, some even estimate a majority of the vulgus were slaves. It was understood by all that this is how society is structured, around status, around honor, around rank. And where you stood was what you were worth. One ancient writer had an interesting observation about this. He wrote, the existence of inferiors is good for superiors, for it enables them to point out those they are superior over. Amen? You see, if I'm at the top of the ladder, I like having people beneath me. It makes me feel good about me. Now, you won't see too many expressing ideas like that in public nowadays. But that idea was very common in the ancient world. The reason you won't see ideas expressed like that in public today is precisely because of Jesus. Jesus taught that people were of equal worth. And that teaching of Jesus eventually won the day in theory, if not always in practice. Now, here's another observation about ancient culture. The social chasm between the elite and the non-elite or between the rich and the poor is the difference between an ant and a camel. Point is this. If you're an ant, you are not going to become a camel. That's the point. You might dream of being rich. You might dream of climbing the ladder somehow, but it's not going to happen. There was very, very little opportunity to advance oneself socially because society was not structured that way. Society was structured to preserve the rank and the status of the already elite. It's kind of like if you fly a lot in our day, you've got a lot of miles, uh, you are 
uh, you've probably achieved the elite status with the airlines and the elite flyers get all the perks. They get private waiting areas. They don't have to wait out where the rest of us wait when we're waiting to get on a flight. They board the plane, oftentimes walking across things like red carpet. They get moist towels with which to cleanse themselves. They get white tablecloths to dine upon. They get more room for comfort. If you are not in this group of the elite flyers, you get no carpet, you get sweat, you get peanuts, and you get sore knees. In the ancient world, clothing was largely about status. Uh, you might have heard of a toga. Uh, it's actually quite a difficult art- article of clothing to wear. Uh, in fact, some wealthy even had trained servants that were trained to help them put on the toga. These were not easy to put on. They were not fun to wear. But even though they were not convenient, they were quite prized because only Roman citizens could wear a toga. If you were not a citizen, you were not allowed to wear one. No matter how much money you had, no citizenship, no toga. It was against the law. The basic toga was called the toga virilis. And uh, we get our word virile from this. Anybody want to guess which gender was not allowed to wear the toga? That's right. Anybody uh, who was of the female gender, no toga for you. If you were a senator... Not only could you wear a toga, you could wear a toga with a purple stripe down the side. Not making this up. In that day, it was illegal to wear the purple stripe if you were not a senator. If you were an equestrian, you were allowed to wear a gold ring. If you were not an equestrian, it was forbidden by law for you to wear a gold ring. You could be punished. Uh, You could be beaten if you were caught wearing a gold ring and not being among the equestrian uh, social level. This was so important uh, that to be an equestrian was sometimes referred to as the honor of the gold ring. If you were an equestrian and you wanted to climb the ladder, this was one of the few instances where somebody could move up the ladder. If you were an equestrian and you wanted to become a senator, then you could wear a special toga. Uh, and I'm, again, not making this up. This was called the Toga Candia. It's, uh, it's what we get our word candidate from. You would wear a toga of dazzling pure white, supposedly symbolic of the purity of your character, character and of your worthiness to occupy a position of being a senator. And so clothing in that day was all about reinforcing, publicly declaring status, honor, and rank. And everybody knew their rank. Another rank indicator was seating at public and at private events. In our day, it's less this way, not exactly this way. If you are willing to shell out enough money, you can go to a game or a concert and you can sit almost anywhere that you would like to sit. Uh, Here at church, these seats that are here in the front row, uh, they are very, very special uh, seats. You can only sit there if you give enough money. You have to give a lot of money to merit sitting in the front row. Fabulous seats, seats of honor. As you can see, we're lousy givers. There's only a few of us. uh. In the ancient world, that's the way seating worked. 
but it wasn't about money. It was about rank and status. You literally would sit according to your rank or your status. So when you went to a public event, you could just look around and you could see how much you mattered depending on where you were allowed to sit. And you knew exactly where you were in the pecking order too of that society. And that's why it was done that way. It was all about enforcing this honor, this status, this rank. Every time you sat someplace, it told you how much you mattered compared to others. The legal system was arranged around this same principle. Uh, In our day, at least in abstract, we would like to think that there is justice available to everybody. The, The law is not a respecter of persons. Uh, there's supposed to be justice for all, regardless of ethnicity or socioeconomic status or gender or things like this. Now, we don't always achieve this, but we certainly aspire to it. But in the ancient world of Rome, that was not their aspiration, understand. The law was designed not just to produce justice for some, it was designed to enforce status. So if you were a person of high status, you could drag somebody into the court system and pretty much work them over. Uh, Historians know, for example, of a person named Servilius, and uh, he was a person of high status. One day he saw that a trial was going on, happened to be passing by, and he looked in to see who was on trial. And uh, he was not part of the trial, had nothing to do with it. But because he was of high status, he actually recognized the person who was on trial. And uh, he decided to go in and bear testimony regarding this individual that was on trial. And we actually have recorded what his words were uh, on the witness stand. This is what he said. He said, I recognize this man. I have no idea what he's being tried for. But one time I was on the road and came to a narrow path. And he was coming the other way and he did not get down off his animal and let me pass. So you should find him guilty. And that's exactly what the jury did. They found him guilty. Because if you're of high status, the law existed for you. If you're of high status, you might be guilty of a grievous crime, even something as serious as murder. But because of your status, your punishment would be adjusted. Uh, your punishment would likely be banishment from the city of Rome or something like that if you were guilty of murder. Whereas if you were of low status, a beating was guaranteed and that was a warm-up usually for execution. Very different worlds depending on your status. Are you still with me at all? Some of you? Okay. Uh, There was a a peculiarly onerous form of punishment. We all know about this punishment, crucifixion. Crucifixion was invented by uh, the Persians, not the Romans, but the Romans actually perfected this form of punishment as a means of humiliating someone, as a means of declaring that person's status. Now, here's the thing in Rome, if you were a citizen of Rome, no matter what crime you might have committed, no matter how heinous that crime might be, you could not be crucified. Crucifixion was for a non-citizen. Crucifixion was usually only for slaves, not always, but usually. It was a proclamation, not just of your guilt, but of your absolute worthlessness. To be crucified was as low as a human being could sink in the Roman world in their status system. So one day in the Roman Empire emerged this this very strange little community. And the guy they revered above all others 
was a crucified guy. Imagine. And that's when the great inversion started happening. One day, the crucified guy's brother, whose name is James, wrote a little book. And if you think this book is nothing but some practical how-tos for living the good life, then you are missing the reality that Jesus' kingdom up there has come down here. And the values of Jesus' kingdom have come right along with that king, King Jesus. And Jesus' values challenge us to the core. They always have challenged people. They still do challenge people. And here are the words that Jesus' brother James wrote to the church. He said, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Wow, that's really strange. Favoritism? Treating people according to their status or their rank, which tells you about their worth. I mean, that's the way life worked in Rome. But James says, not in this new community. Not anymore. Why not? Well, because God has no favorites. That's why the Son of God said, for God so loved the world. What an interesting thing to say. One tribe of people is no different, no better than another tribe. And that means that everyone is of equal worth. This is a revolutionary thought. This thought, understand, changed the world. Nobody thought that until Jesus came along. Uh, the founding document of our country says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, all human beings are created equal. That was not self-evident to Caesar. That was not self-evident to senators or equestrians or decurions. Not self-evident at all. This, this was even not self-evident to the Israelites. This is such a profoundly subversive truth that came from Jesus' teaching that it had to be repeated over and over and over in the New Testament so that Jesus' followers would have Jesus' values. Uh, Luke tells us, for example, about how God taught this lesson to Peter. You can read all about this in Acts chapter 10. Peter has a vision, not just once, but three times. It's just a repetition over and over and over. Uh, and then a Gentile by the name of Cornelius has a vision to go ask for Peter to come visit him and his family, his Gentile family. Next thing you know, Peter is standing in Cornelius's home, something no good Jew would ever do, and he's telling a house full of Gentiles about Jesus, and Peter says this in Acts 10, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. This was revolutionary. Jews thought Israel was God's favorite. Everybody else, second class. Paul writes to the cities of Ephesus and Colossae, and to both of these cities, he says, there is no favoritism with God. This is, again, so subversive. When James uses this word favoritism, he actually has to make up a word that means showing favoritism. This was the sin for which there was no name in the ancient world. 
because it was so prominent and so prevalent. And so James coins a word not used in any ancient literature before his time, as far as we know. James, this is what James says literally. He says, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not turn their faces up to people like this, you see, longingly. Uh, it's a very vivid way of picturing what we do when we show favoritism. We look up to someone. We're kind of admiring them. We're wanting their recognition. We're wanting their approval. We're wanting their friendship. And James says, we're done with that. No more of that. Not in this community that has been founded by the crucified guy. James goes on. This is going to really push people's buttons. Take the historical context that I've given you and now listen to the words of James. James says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring. Remember the gold ring thing? And fine clothes. Remember the togas? And a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes, which of course they will. Are you kidding? That's what the culture does. And if you say, here's a good seat for you, which is, of course, that's exactly what they're going to do. They want to honor the status that this person has. But you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. And of course, that's what they're going to do. James says, if you do that, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James describes a man here with a gold ring wearing fine clothes. This could well be a reference to an equestrian who wants to become a senator. Uh, wants to get to the very top of the heap of society. For sure, this guy already has status and wants more. He's going somewhere. So of course they're going to say to him, welcome, you come on in, you sit right here, be our guest of honor. You have uh, power and authority and office. You're an important guy. Sure, we'll lift up our faces. We'll show favoritism to you. They're probably thinking, what a coup this would be for Jesus if Jesus could just get this guy on his team. But the other guy, the ragged guy, he's got no credentials. He's got no fine clothes. He holds no office. He's not important. And so they say, you go sit over there or here, have a seat by my feet. It's no big deal if you join the team or not. And of course, that's what they're going to do. That's what they were doing. They've been trained to do that their whole life long. Their culture has trained them to think that way. And it's into that situation that James says, not okay. This has got to stop. My crucified brother, Jesus says, not okay. And of course, this is the way the world works and the world gets into the church all the time. James goes on to say, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, you have to understand too how radically disorienting these next words are in that ancient culture uh, and still are today, actually. He says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world? Well, who's that? Who, who are you talking about, James? Well, people like Jesus, Mary, Joseph, people like that. People like Peter, James, John, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith 
and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. God is honoring them. You're dishonoring them. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Of course it is. Of course, the world is set up that way. That's the way it's supposed to work in the world. This is not James saying, let me give you a few good tips for living the good life. That's what I want you to see. This is earth shattering stuff. He is inviting us into a great spiritual reality and revolution. That's what the kingdom of God is about. Dallas Willard talked about this. And again, as I said, he called it the great inversion. He wrote these words. He says, God now is turning everything upside down. This transcends human arrangements, culture, politics, everything. The great inversion involves this thought among others. Now in Christ, there are none in the humanly down position so low that they cannot be lifted up by entering God's order right now. And there are none in the humanly up position so high they can disregard God's point of view on their lives. Now, of course, it's not that if you're poor, God automatically loves you. And if you're rich, God automatically doesn't. No, remember, for God so loved the world. No favoritism. But but understand, the thing about poverty is it tends to make people see their need and feel their need, even oftentimes their need of God. And riches, on the other hand, tend to make people blind to their need, often especially blind to their need of God. So wealth, which makes many think that they are secure and they are strong in the world, wealth, spiritually speaking, can be a hindrance. It often is a hindrance to seeing who you really are and to seeing what and who you really need in your life. This is the great inversion happening. Blessed are the meek, Jesus said. Blessed are the poor, Jesus said. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus said. Jesus' brother James writes and says, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. What high position is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the fact that God loves them. That's the highest position you can occupy. He talks about, he's talking about God watching over them, God providing for them, God promising them the kingdom of heaven. But the rich, he says, should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. How often do you see that on a plaque in churches? <laughs> the rich will pass away like a wildflower. But it's true. Wealth isn't going to make a hill of beans worth a difference in heaven. Everybody's going to be wealthy. It's what you do with your wealth that can make a difference. James says, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. This is part of why James has really been a favorite book of rich people. It's true. It's true. And it's why it should be read by rich people always. Starting with me. 
Because by any standard, when you look at our world, I am rich. Rich to the max. And so are you. James' words are for us. We live in this world that teaches us to rank people based on how much money they have, where they went to school, how successful they are, how beautiful they are, and to overlook and treat with scorn and derision human beings who are priceless treasures to God. We think that we're very clever. We think we know the value of things. This person matters and this person does not. And we take God's prized possessions, creatures that he has made, his priceless treasures, and we treat them like they are pieces of junk. You sit or stand over there. You can have a a seat here at the floor by my feet. You're not worth noticing. You're not worth my time, my energy, my effort. It's, it's so interesting. James says, you show special attention to, that is, you take notice of the man wearing fine clothes. And this is so true. This is a little window into the insight that James has. And that insight came from watching his brother Jesus. Uh, we notice what we want, don't we? Um, anytime you want something, you get focused on it and you start noticing it. Uh, say you want to buy a poodle. Why you'd want to do that, I have no idea. But say you want to buy a poodle. Suddenly, you're noticing poodles, different kinds of poodles everywhere because you're focused on that. Say you you decide you want to buy a certain make, a certain model of a car. Now, as you drive around, you see that make and that model of car more often, more frequently, or everywhere because you're focused on it. Well, you know, we think that well-dressed people matter, rich people matter, powerful people matter, beautiful people matter, and that's what we want to be, so we notice them. We focus on them. We turn our faces up to them. We show favoritism. You know, they might be strategic to me. I think I'll get to know them. But Jesus is not that way. One day Jesus sang a song. It was different than Tevye's. His song went something like, if I were a poor man. You see, he came down to earth. He was born in a manger. He took off his heavenly clothing. He set aside the heavenly status and honor and rank. And he did all of that for us. And now we get to be a part of this great inversion that Jesus is undertaking. And the difficult question we face is, do I really believe this? We made declarations in a song about things we believe. Do we really believe those things? Do do I really embrace Jesus' kingdom values or do I embrace the world's values? This is what James gets into in the second chapter of his book. And uh, there, there is a way to tell whose values you embrace. And James dives right into this. James says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? 
Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith without action is dead. It's not real saving faith. Do you want to swallow hard collectively together with me? You see, that kind of faith that James is describing, it sees a need, it does nothing to meet it, makes no attempt whatsoever, even though that need is right here, not out there, it's right here. That is not the faith of Jesus. That is not what Jesus would do. James is making the very important point that our behavior reveals what we actually believe. In college, a long, long time ago, I used to do a lot of rock climbing and uh, rappelling down cliffs. And I would take students out that wanted to learn to do that with me. And I would show them the harness and the carabiners and the ropes and the knots that we'd use. And I would talk about the tensile strength of the harness and the rope and this and that. And I would have them pull on the rope, you know, to see how strong it was. And I would do all of this away from the cliff face. We hadn't gotten to the cliff face yet, right? And students were usually pretty confident of the equipment, uh, never expressed any concern about that. And then I would ask them, are you ready to do this? Do you trust the equipment? Are you ready to go? Do you feel safe? And most often they would say yes. And then we would march over to the face of the cliff. And uh, they're all harnessed up. They're roped in. And I would explain, now what you need to do is, you know, back up right to the edge of the cliff face. And just go ahead and, you know, put your toes right there. And then I would tell them, just start leaning back and letting out the rope. That was always pretty interesting. Uh, Come to find out, many of them would forsake the faith. (laughs) Many of them didn't believe in or trust the equipment like they said they did. Their faith in in the equipment vanished. Their hands started sweating. Their hands didn't have faith. Their stomach was rumbling. Their stomach lacked faith. Their armpits did not believe that they were safe. And, And here's the thing. When it comes to talking about what we believe, there are three categories of belief, at least three. There are those beliefs that I claim to believe, but really I don't believe them. I'm just just telling you I believe them, right? Uh, When pastors do this and this happens, they're, they're hypocrites. That's what we call them. They're saying they believe one thing, but they don't really believe it. When politicians uh, do this, we call them presidents usually. And then there's another category of belief. Uh, There are beliefs that I think I believe, but it turns out in the moment I don't really believe them. That's kind of the example of the rope. and the Yeah, I'm good with you. Yeah, let's do that. But when I get to the edge of the cliff, oh, wait a minute. I'm not sure I do believe this any longer. I thought I believed it. I found out I didn't because of my behavior. And then there are things that we believe and we believe them so deeply, we base our behavior on those things, right? All in. You could call those things actually our mental map, right? This is how we think the world really functions. This is how we think things really are. It's my mental map. And this is why our behavior tells us what we really believe. We all live at the mercy of our mental maps. For example, I believe in gravity. 
I believe that gravity actually operates. I never violate my belief in gravity. That's part of my mental map. And therefore, I don't walk to the edge of a cliff and let out the rope until I know these things can hold me for certain. I don't do that. Uh, I don't jump off, jump off of tall buildings because I believe in gravity. And James is making the point that real faith in Jesus is faith that causes us to behave like Jesus. It's a faith that has the values that Jesus has. Real faith in Jesus is faith that has Jesus' mental map. It's faith that believes what Jesus believed. Any other kind of faith is not real faith. It's not saving faith. So when Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, he's saying, what I tell you is true. Therefore, you can believe it. You can trust me. Well, about what, Jesus? Well, about everything. Everything. Your job, your income, your relationships, your challenges, your successes, your failures. You can trust me and believe me about everything. So when James says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Well, real faith makes or adopts a new value. It adds that value to the mental map because that is Jesus' mental map. This is how Jesus sees people. He values people. So when I look at somebody who has nothing, no status, no power in the eyes of the world, but I see them the way Jesus sees them, he loves them, he cares about them, therefore I love them too. I will endeavor to care for them too. I will help them too, just the way Jesus helps me. Faith that does not do what Jesus would do is not Jesus' faith, it's dead faith. Now, <laughs> we all sit here this morning, we're all thinking, my goose is cooked. I got dead faith. I mean, if you're like me, you don't follow Jesus perfectly. I almost do, but not quite. Uh, <laughs> no, that's the big problem, isn't it? What do I do with my failure? Well, the Bible talks about something called repentance. I take my sin and I bring it back to Jesus. I do this every day and I ask again and again and again for forgiveness. I receive forgiveness and I turn from that sin and I endeavor to not sin. That's what saving faith does with the problem of failure. And saving faith does this over and over and over. And may God forgive us for thinking that our mental maps can be different from Jesus' mental map. And that's okay. I don't need to believe what Jesus believed. I don't need to embrace his teachings. It, it's okay. I can make up my own teachings. I can do what I want. James is challenging that notion. James' mental map says God is watching. I'm sorry. Jesus' mental map says God is watching over me all the time. That's what Jesus believed. Jesus believed that the Lord was his shepherd. He, he had no needs, no wants. I'm never at risk, Jesus believed. Not ultimately, because nothing can separate me from my Father, not even a cross, not permanently. And so I will die to save people for myself, Jew and Gentile, free slave, 
female, male. I will serve them by sacrificing myself on a cross and my father will take care of me. And that's how Jesus saw himself. That's how Jesus saw the world. And here's the thing. If we are his disciples, then saving faith is when I come to believe what Jesus actually believed. I embrace what Jesus actually taught. And my behaviors become like Jesus' behaviors. I start using my time differently because of this. I make use of my skills and abilities differently because of this. And I start even using my money differently because of this. In other words, my behavior starts to look like Jesus' behavior. That's when I know my faith is Jesus' faith. And that's actually good news. It's good news for the poor and the orphans and the widows and the hungry and the refugees and the list is long because faithful followers of Jesus say, God, you're watching over me all the time. May my values become your values. May the truths that I embrace, my mental map be conformed to the mental map of Jesus, your son. May I use the things that you've given me, whether that's resources or whether that's skills and abilities you've built into me, may I use those things to love others and care for others. You see, when that starts to happen, the great inversion starts to happen. The kingdom of Jesus Christ has come to earth and that's what we are called to be a part of. Nothing less, nothing less. (laughs) And this is incredibly challenging. It'll challenge us every day. It'll challenge us when we fail. What do we do with our failures? Well, we repent, we confess, and we bring them to Jesus, and we start over. Challenging, oh yeah. I'll tell you what though, our world is waiting for believers in Jesus to believe what Jesus believed, to behave the way Jesus behaves. That's what we get to do. That is what we get to do as his followers. And that's the way to the good life. That's what James is telling us. You want the good life? The good life is not where you think it is. The good life is showing no favoritism. The good life is behaving the way Jesus behaves. The good life is having the same mental map that Jesus has. Not making one up for yourself. Amen. Let's pray. God, help us. Lord, we cannot do this for ourselves. And we confess to you that sin and elitism and pride and greed and resentment and endless desire, lust, these things have gotten into us, into our bodies, into our hearts, into our minds in ways that we can never change. But you can And God, I pray for me and my brothers and my sisters here this morning. Help us to obey you. Help us to take the step of faith off the cliff of fear and discover as we risk obeying, as we risk giving, as we risk loving and caring, help us to discover the truth. It's all true. Your kingdom is real. I pray for everybody here, God as we leave this place and go through our days and see people way up on the ladder or way down on the ladder, that you will help us see them as you see them and love them as you give us opportunity to love them. I pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.